If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For a few short years in the 1960s, the youth of America were utterly enthralled to a collection of skinny, pale, long-haired musicians from England. So what explains the incredible success of everyone from the Beatles to Herman's Hermits on the other side of the Atlantic? And what impact did this phenomenon have on Britain's global standing? Here, in conversation with our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, author and broadcaster David Hepworth considers the British pop invasion of America. So, um, David, your, your new book, Overpaid, Over Sex and Over There, tells the story of the British pop invasions of the US in the, the 60s, 70s and 80s, uh, documenting the extraordinary success on the other side of the Atlantic of everyone from the Beatles, uh, Led Zeppelin to Rod Stewart. Um, now, David, I was really interested to note um, when reading the introduction to your book that the Prussian statesman Otto von Bismarck <laughs> makes an, an appearance, uh, yeah, quite early in the book. <laughs> Which, you know, as this is a history podcast, uh, I, I sort of latched on to that. Um, like, like you referred to, to his quote that the most significant factor affecting modern history was uh, the fact that the Americans speak the same language as the English. Now, um, why is that important to your story? Well, it was obviously important in, in in the wider historical context, isn't it? You know, the two world wars and so forth, which America was involved in, which you can't help think it wouldn't have been involved in if there had been a different language between England and uh, between the UK and uh, and the United States. But um, you know, why is that significant? Because it allowed British pop music to do what no other non-American pop music had done which was to penetrate the United States because they were, you know, to use the the old joke, divided by a common language, you know. So there was enough there for them to get started in a way that there wouldn't have been if there had been French pop stars or Italians or, or what, whatever. I also put that in there because, frankly, where, you know, one of the things I try and do in my books is... Um, you know, I always say that most books about pop music history nowadays are like most books of Second World War history, in that they are they written by people who weren't there. Well, you know, I was there during most of these events described here, and so I remember them. So it's a combination of kind of history and what I personally remember. And I'm personally very uh, keen on history. I, I read a lot of history and so forth. So I couldn't resist putting that Bismarck uh, quote in at the beginning, not just as catnip to get you uh, get you entry. <laughs> it, it was just uh, trying to say, you know, this is a very significant thing in terms of, uh, particularly in terms of the kind of British self-image that that still hangs on to this day. But it was in the 60s, you know, the, the arrival of the Beatles and the acceptance of the Beatles in the, into the United States and all the acts that came after them 
gave a real fillip to kind of national pride in the UK, uh, coming from a very unlikely place. It wasn't sport, it wasn't politics, it wasn't industry. It was this odd thing, pop music. And it, you know, it turned out to be an absolutely key lever of, I think, what they call soft power, don't they? Uh, You know, in terms of influencing the rest of the world and particularly America. So, you know, that's what I wanted to do is to is to tell the story, not just the musical story, but also the kind of social and the cultural story that went along with it. So to put this into context, um, in the early 60s, when this kicked off, I mean, Britain and America were two very different nations, weren't they, on two very different trajectories. Um, I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. Well, I mean, I was just talking from the point of view of being a 12 or 13-year-old boy, as I, as I was at the time. You know, the, the, we felt very definitely the poor relations of the United States, and we were, you know. They, they, we, I grew up, you know, the tail end of rationing and so forth. And so America was uh, was the land of plenty, and its plenty was exhibited uh, in our living room, into our living rooms via TV screens, you know, because a large part of television, or the, the most exciting part of television in those days, was pretty much anything that came from the United States. It's kind of Westerns, or it was 77 Sunset Strip, or it was Lucille Ball, or it was Melee Tyler Moore, and all this. All that stuff was just, it was more polished than anything that was, was coming out of the UK. It was it was unashamedly advertised and celebrated the good life, and and the kind of people at the front of it, you know, American TV stars and American movie stars, and American pop stars were kind of better looking than ours. You know, they had better teeth, they were better turned out. You know, there were classic contrasts. I remember, I remember the early sixties going to see uh, Cliff Richard and the Young Ones, and then, and then go to see Elvis Presley in Blue Hawaii. And Elvis Presley just had this kind of Venusian sheen to him that, you know, that, that not even Cliff Richard. And Cliff Richard was, you know, he was didn't look like the back of the bus or what, anything like. But he just didn't have that extra special dimension of glamour, which we utterly associated with the United States. And then musically, you have the fact that rock and roll is a form of music invented in the United States. And it's its natural tongue is American English. Uh, And, you know, British groups attempting in the 50s to do it always looked and sounded like poor relations, that they were doing it on a a lower budget, probably probably with technology not as good, because in the early days of forming rock and roll groups in Britain, they couldn't get hold of the instruments because there was a, you know, there were taxes on luxury goods coming from the United States. So they had to learn on Swedish and German instruments and so forth. It, that started to change in the 60s. But, uh, you know, it, they, our attempts to ape American popular music were not very successful. But we were immensely influenced by American popular music. And what happened is, is we passed that American popular music through the filter of a very British sensibility, which turned out to be way more appealing to the rest of the world than we ever imagined it could possibly be. So why was that? I mean, why did America fall in love with, um, as you describe it, a few skinny kids with bad teeth? (laughs) (laughs) It's a strange thing. I mean, a lot of it was America's kind of, I think America was ready for something, you know. And one of the things I, 
I made a lot, of, you know, make quite a bit of in the book is the fact that you have to look at the at the context that the Beatles arrived in America in February 1964, and. Three months before, there had been probably low likelihood of them, of them ever going there at all, let alone arriving like conquering heroes in the way that they did. And one of the key events that happened in between there is, is the assassination of John F. Kennedy, which takes place in late November in Dallas. And, you know, like everybody was around at the time, I can remember exactly where I was. And I can remember how even in Britain... We were kind of sunk into national mourning as a consequence of that. Well, that was nothing to what they were, what, what was happening in the United States. And so, you know, the, it, the, what strikes me is the is the kind of the, the, the national embrace of the Beatles instantly when they arrived. They didn't have to make a point. You know, they they were already ready for them. That was a kind of it's like a party at the end of a long period of mourning. It was it was an explosion of just a need to feel some joy, and I think it was also a reflection of the fact that you had you know a baby boomer generation growing up. There are more and more of them. You know they're feeling their economic muscle. They didn't wish to be associated with the music of the previous decade. But what is just extraordinary about the Beatles' arrival in America is they arrived at the top. They didn't arrive at the bottom. They didn't work their way up. America was absolutely primed and ready for them when they arrived. And all the Beatles had to do was not disappoint them. Right. And they didn't disappoint them, you know, which is, you know, they, they're very blessed in that. But why, why didn't American um, American music by in public go for American acts? What was it about these English British acts that really appealed to them? Well, it, it's very it's always very difficult to, to say why anything. I mean, the, the Beatles were very good. Clearly, yeah. Um, I think the uh, people keyed into the kind of happiness that the Beatles uh, delivered. I think it's something we very much we tend to lose sight of nowadays. When people look back at the Beatles, they look back on the beardy, weirdy bit of the Beatles rather than the early exultant personal pronoun pop bit of the Beatles, and that was what they were all about in the early days. Uh, I think one of the things that struck me while writing the book is, you know, Paul McCartney, when he was going there, thought to himself, why would the Americans want us? Surely they've got loads of groups. Well, the curious thing was they didn't really have loads of groups. They had loads of solo singers. And, you know, the great tradition of, of America then and now tends to be the solo act, you know, the Elvis Presley, Little Richard, and, and so forth, and, and Roy Orbison, you know, all those people kicking around still in the early 60s. What people really, and what American teenagers keyed into about the Beatles was this sense of them being a group, that a group was like a family. It was an alternative family that's probably slightly better than your own family. And, you know, there are people who will tell you that this is a time Americans, you know, apparently they come back from the war, they'd moved to the suburbs, they'd started the family, they'd provided everybody with peace and material uh, prosperity. But there was a little bit of emotional malnourishment, I think, which I think the Beatles definitely keyed into. And you 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 hear the reactions of people who remember going to see Hard Day's Night, you know, just the utter devotion to being disappearing into the world of, oh, God, wouldn't it be brilliant to be in a group like the Beatles? Because that would mean taking your 
your childhood peer group into adulthood and being still applauded for it. So I think the group was a huge thing. I think the informality was a huge thing. I think the hair was a huge thing. <laughs> you know, they didn't look, the Beatles, the great thing about the Beatles is they didn't look like they were taking instructions from anybody at all. And this is, to me, really interesting that Britain is regarded as the home of everybody knowing the place, you know, and the class system and all that sort of thing. And it is. But there is a rich tradition of kind of cheek and insubordination in, in British culture, which the Beatles exemplified better than anybody. And I think America really liked the idea of that. And it was the idea that they were, you know, kind of warm but disrespectful to each other. But if anybody from the outside attacked them, they drew together invisibly. <laughs> and, and all these things, had, I think, have a really powerful appeal to people. And then you look at it, all the other groups that came in their, in their wake. You know, there was, there was a burst of, you know, people like the Dave Clark Five were a very big deal. Didn't turn into a long-term big deal, but were a very big deal for, for a couple of years and made an awful lot of money. And you know, but then there are the big ones who came in the week. Wake, I suppose. You know, you know, you're talking about the Rolling Stones. You talk about the Who, and you talk about the acts who played a Woodstock, and then you're talking about everybody who came afterwards. It didn't apply to everybody. You know, the period of British of American obsession with English pop music was quite. It's about three years, I suppose, during which time, as Bruce Springsteen will tell you. They used to try and impress the girls in the record shops by speaking in a British accent. What mm. they imagined was the British accent. And of course, as we all know, there is no such thing as a British accent. But, you know, but that was a short period of time. But the, you know, but the interest in uh, the acceptance of all things British continued for a long period. Now, um, as you said just earlier, this wasn't just the Beatles and the Stones, was it? It was a... a no. Lots and lots of British bands made it big in America. Now they were they were traveling from um, what was some place regarded as quite a, a grey country to a big Technicolor, super confident country. I mean, what kind of impact did did going to America have on these these young British rock stars? Oh, almost without exception, it utterly turned their heads. And, and, you know, very often had terrible consequences for them, you know, because they just never got over it, you know. It started off with them first arriving and, you know, making the first acquaintance with, you know, uh, undreamt of wonders like air conditioning mm -hmm. and the fact that if you can't get to the restaurant, you can ring the restaurant and they will send the food to you. All these kind of things. They couldn't get over the fact that when they turned the TV on, it came on straight away. Because you know, Britain was the land of kind of you gotta if anything's worth having you gotta wait <laughs> wait some time to get it you know whereas America wasn't it was kind of instant gratification so that was the kind of first level of it and um, and and I think and, and also a huge number of them found uh, partners in the United States you know I mean even the Beatles. They all ended up marrying, well, foreigners, and they had a lot of Americans and whatever. And this applied to lots and lots of these people. And, um, and they started to, and I suppose the Rolling Stones were probably the first people to do this. They started to make records that reflected the reality of being in America. And the classic cases of this satisfaction and, and get off my cloud and honky-tonk women and all these kind of things. They've... 
kind of transformed themselves into these traveling English guys. And what their, what their records do is, uh, is reflect this really larger-than-life, you know, slightly unsatisfactory, puzzling, overexcited, overaccelerated new world, you know, that they couldn't, they couldn't help reflecting. And that became really, that became, made them even more appealing to the American public. Um, but there are, there are lots of groups who never, you know, if you win in the States, you win hugely. If you lose in the States, it's really difficult. You know, people like, people like the Kinks, you know, kind of fell out with the Musicians' Union quite early on and were effectively banned for a few years from being in the United States. You know, some people, some people were lucky. Some people worked at it very, very hard. The Who were the first group to realize the key thing about America is you never break America. It's too big. You right. just keep going. It's 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 fifty some countries. You know what I mean? It's not one nation. You can't go on top of the pops and be known by everybody in the nation. So it's touring, touring, touring. Certainly, in the case yeah. of the Who, and the Who made a you know did it for years and years and years, and are probably you know for all I know still doing it today. You know, that you have to go out into the American heartland because what happened to loads of groups both in the 60s, uh, 60s, 70s and beyond, is that it's very easy in America to fly into Kennedy Airport to go and do a couple of prestige gigs in New York and then fly to LA, do a TV show and think you've cracked America. No, you have not touched it. You've simply dealt with two islands off the coast of America, one in the West and one in the East, and they have no effect on the rest of the nation at all because the rest of the nation is slower, is different, is, you know, changes its mind more gradually. So, you know, that's, that's been a factor all the time. And I think as, as somebody, you know, I can't remember, as Pete Townsend says it in the book that um, bands who go to America, British bands, they, you know, within three weeks, they realise they're working harder than they've ever worked in their lives because yeah. the distances, you know, <laughs> it saps you. And this was in the days when, you know, you, you could just go up the M1. You covered the whole country, and then then they returned to London after the show. Well, you can't do that in America. Sure. You've got to spend a long time away. It drains you. And so the people who who made it huge in America were the people who played the long game and had real patience and understood that. There are loads of acts early on and subsequently who tried it and decided they couldn't hack it and came home. And the problem is that if you don't make it in America, it's very difficult to keep going because you, you, you've got to keep on expanding. It's like any business, really. You've got to find new markets, new worlds to conquer. And if you can't conquer America, it's a very difficult thing to sustain. You know, the jam tried America and genuinely tried a number of times. And then I think about the seventh time, they just, that's it. It's not going to work. And they broke up quite soon afterwards. And you can kind of see why. Because if you're not going to make it in America, whereas if you do make it in America, they never break up. Because they can go forever. Because there's the great irony about popular music, is this was supposed to be the life, the mayfly life expectancy. It's turned out to be the longest lasting job of any kind. Yeah. You can be Mick Jagger far longer than you can be a movie star, a politician, a financier or anything. 
Nobody guessed that was going to happen yeah, back in 1974. I mean, Mick Jagger was almost 18, I was in E, so... <laughs> well, something like that, yeah, yeah. In the late 70s, certainly. Yeah, but, yeah, you know, yeah. And people say to me, why, why do these acts keep going? And I, I say, look, if Bobby Charlton could put a Man United shirt on and go and play for them on Saturday, he would, wouldn't he? Yes. Well, Mick Jagger is doing that because he can yeah. and because he can make an awful lot of money out of it. Why wouldn't he? Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Because there's nothing that the young men of America hate more than the notion that the young women are suddenly being attracted by these guys come from the other side of the world who were real weaklings. Now, what did the American acts think of the success of British bands? I mean, was there an element of jealousy there? Did... Oh, there was definitely an element of jealousy. You know, there were a whole load of acts who, who just simply couldn't get hired after the, you know, after the Beatles arrived and they, and there was a, suddenly a mania for anything from the United Kingdom. And you even got, you got American acts styling themselves as if they were British acts, you know. And you get people like Scott Walker comes over to, to London to relaunch himself with the Walker Brothers. Jimi Hendrix does the same thing because you have to be seen as a as an import from swinging London, which is suddenly the capital of the world. Yes, there was resentment, which, you know, you can see showing through at regular intervals over the period of time, you know. And, uh, and uh, but thankfully, in America, they never imposed what they imposed in France and various other territories, uh, territories which is a, a, a kind of um, a certain amount of, of content on the radio has to be homegrown. The America, America never went in, in for that kind of thing, you know, so it was always a fairly open market. But, yeah, there, there was resentment, and, uh, and, they, and particularly these guys who were seen as being fags in the parlance, you know, and uh, being long-haired and simpering and, and had, uh, as they frequently re- remarked, uh, you know, dodgy teeth. And, and particularly, that was particularly strong, that prejudice, at the point when they were exciting, clearly exciting, all the young women of America. Because there's nothing that the young men of America hate more than the notion that the young women are suddenly being attracted by these guys come from the other side of the world who were real weaklings. That's one of the things that interested to me. They're not, they're not beach boys. They're, they're not buff, these guys. They're, they're guys who have never taken their shirts off before, you know what I mean? It's amazing. You look at their old picture of the Beatles during that first tour where they go to, they go to Miami and they're, and they're photographed by the swimming pool in shorts and, and, and T-shirts. And they just look really strange. Because you realise you'd never seen the Beatles like that before. Because you've never seen the Beatles in a hot country before. <laughs> you know, you've seen them in their suits. So, um, you know, they were... They, there is a kind of archetype of, of English rock star, you know, which slowly changes over the years. But, but you know, if you look at Robert Plant's, you know, you, you look at Paul Rogers out of Free, you look... And this is the late 60s. The kind of bare-chested... <laughs> The long ringlets, you know, Roger Daltrey or whatever, narrow hips, slightly camp at the same time as as predatory. <laughs> it's a really interesting mix. And he would never have come to, from America. It came from Britain. 
you know, because I don't know why it is, really, but it's their Britishness came out in America more than it would have done at home. Now, on a, on a sort of related note, as your book, um, as your book documents, these tours involve quite a lot of um, sex and drugs and excess. I mean, in your estimation, which one of the bands uh, enjoyed or indulged in that the most? Oh, good grief. I, I think it's, it's very hard to say, you know, because there's, there's always... People talk a good fight when it comes to this stuff. Nobody denies it, you know, because it's, it's kind of good for, your, um, good for your image, you know. And what you do know is, is pretty much all of them, um, you know, all of them are touring in the, early, in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. Um, Los Angeles was the kind of epicentre of end-of-tour bacchanals of the most, you know, appalling, appalling kind, um, which, strangely enough, never got home, really. The news of them never reached their wives or whatever, because this is clearly before the days of, uh, you know, social media. And, uh, you know, my, I, I profoundly believe you can't be a rock star anymore in the 21st century because of social media. It just, it, you, can't, you, you won't get started. <laughs> Whereas it flourished in the dark, you know. But you know the, the bands are always the bands are always associated with it. Clearly, people like Led Zeppelin, but Led it was part of Led Zeppelin's legend. It was part of what made them really attractive to people. Is that they were it would arrive when Led Zeppelin arrived in town. It was like the Vikings were going to come through the place, <laughs> and you were going to you're going to be shaking yourself afterwards. You know. They would have taken all the money out of the community. They had carried off the carried off the women folk or whatever. That was kind of part of their appeal. I'm sure none of these bands did it anything like as much as we think, because they would have been absolutely exhausted. And what you'd probably find if you did a kind of a detailed audit of bad behaviour, yeah, you'd probably find that the bands with the, with the squeakiest, most squeaky clean images were the ones who got up to it most of all. And at one stage, Pete Townsend mentions this in his memoir, when the Who are on tour in 1967, I think, and they're supporting Herman's Hermits, who do not forget, Peter Noon and Herman's Hermits were a very big deal in the States for about two years. And uh, uh, the Who are all struck with admiration when they see Peter Noon come out of his hotel room accompanied by a mother and her daughter. Uh, you know... And then right. the who had right. never got never got that far, you know. So who knows? Who knows? Now you mentioned um, earlier um, that this is kind of a form of soft power for for Britain, and it, this was you know Britain was on a kind of downwards tra trajectory, um, losing his empire, losing his power around the world. I mean, how much of a shot in the arm was this phenomenon? Do you think to, to the country and its global image? Well, I think it was it was undoubtedly it, it it was a fillet for people like me growing up, because you suddenly thought being English British was a kind of cool thing to be, <laughs> at the point when the concept of cool was was kind of emerging, you know, and uh, and you you then you know what what goes along with it in the sixties is the is the, the rise in the fashion, you know, uh, business in the UK. 
Um, you know, the 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 um, international reputation of people like Vidal Sassoon and Mary Quant and all those people, and the, the fact that all the American, all the movie business suddenly wants to make films in London, and they all do. And then everybody watching this in America thinks, do you know, I've got to go to London. I've got, I've just got to go and do that. I've got to go and see Bobby's on bicycles two by two. You know, I've got to find gents in 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 bowler hats. You know, and, and people people who've just procured aspidistries at street markets. All that that kind of the kind of fantasy of London, which we kind of still live with, comes from swinging London. You know, the idea that London is a pleasure capital, which still holds on, is established in 1966. And uh, I used to work in Carnaby Street in the early 80s. And I used to look out the window and think, my God, they're still coming here from all over the world, Swedish Swedish tourists, 17-year-olds wearing rubber policemen's helmets or, you know, you know, people from Moose Droppings, Ohio. They're all coming to Carnaby Street. There has been nothing happening in Carnaby Street since about 1968. But if you establish that once... It doesn't change, you know. You know, we've all got an idea of what Nashville is like. It's probably not like that at all. But we got that idea. And so London became, you know, a place that people had an idea about. And then you've got, you know, you've got Harold Wilson turning up to kind of give John Lennon an award or whatever it was he did. You know, first prime minister to ever wish to be photographed alongside a pop star. Well, nowadays they all desperately want to do it. And and the whole notion of creative Britain, <laughs> you know, comes from that. I think it's rooted in that era, you know, that the idea is that we know better than anybody else in the world what the youth want. Uh, I don't think it's true, particularly, but I think it, I think it's a line you can sell quite successfully. Now, you, you, you said earlier that um, the British invasion of, of the states in the sixties only lasted a few short years. I mean, was there a second invasion in the 80s, would you say? I mean, I've heard that mentioned before. Well, yeah, yeah, there is. There is definitely. There are, you know, and, and basically it's, um, in the in the early 80s, it's, um, it's the arrival of MTV in the States, you know, which is music television, which is round the clock, showing pop videos. Nobody thought it was going to work. And, um, and also at that time... Uh, most of the American acts didn't make videos because it wasn't a big thing. As a consequence, most of the American acts looked like REO Speedwagon or Huey Lewis and the News, rather than in Britain, where we made videos, they looked like Adam and the Ants or Duran Duran or the Human League or whatever, people with very definite visual images. So what happened in the early days of MTV is they were desperately looking around for product to play and Britain was the source of it, because because we were all everybody was making clips for Saturday morning kids TV or Top of the Pops or whatever. So British acts had a rich tradition of dressing up and acting the fool, and so there was this um, this invasion, and also there was this kind of interesting, you know, kind of um, ambiguous sexuality to loads of those acts, Culture Club, Eurythmics all these kind of people, which made them very exotic to America because there's nothing like that in America. And and also those acts, they they uh, wrote good tunes, they recorded good tunes, and they made records for dancing 
And so this was at a time when America wasn't really producing that sort of stuff. And so there was definitely that, uh, you know, probably a two-year period, 82, 83, when, um, when the British acts are suddenly back on top in the United States. Didn't last that long because I don't think it produced... I don't think many acts who came out of it were all that remarkable. I don't think the, a flock of seagulls were going to have as long a career as, you know, the Who. Um, but, uh, you know, for, for a period of time, it was a big deal being British again. But did any British acts um, ever show a bit of sniffiness or, or ambivalence towards making it in America? Like they were, li- they were a little bit above, <laughs> above going over there and making it big. I think... The, the acts who are sniffing about America are almost without exception the ones who don't make it in America. Um, anybody who makes it in America, <laughs> they know they're not going to mess with that at all, you know. And they realize that they have to kind of slightly tailor their their act a bit, you know, for the American public. There are certain things that don't go down in America, you know, and um, and and do here. One of the things that fascinated me just thinking about it when, when I was writing the book or researching the book is famously in 1966, I think it is, John Lennon is quoted in a teenage magazine as saying, we're more popular than Jesus now. And suddenly the, a sky falls in on him in America. You know, nobody in Britain had batted an eyelid at this at all, you know. But that was just a salutary reminder of what a, a kind of you know, religious frontier culture still, you know, still obtains in America, you know, and it's something we've been reminded of, I think, in the last four years. You know, the centre of America is is immensely conservative. It doesn't matter what the coasts do. And um, and I couldn't help reflecting that if, um, you know, if the Beatles were around today, they'd be having to apologise uh, pretty much every week for something, you know, because... That was pretty much the only time in the Beatles' career that they had to call a press conference and say, look, we're sorry. We're sorry if this has been taken the wrong way, which is remarkable when you consider how big they were, that they only did that once. So, yes, I think there is a sniffiness. And, well, the classic case of this is Sex Pistols go there in 1978 because they're kind of expected to go there because they've made a big sensation in Britain. So what else are you going to do? Are you going to go to America? The problem is there was no way they could go to America, really, because they could never reproduce the sensation they'd caused in Britain. They just couldn't do it. The country's too big. It's too various. And uh, and so Johnny Rotten, the singer, developed this kind of patter, you know, on stage in front of American audiences where he used to say, I'm not here to entertain you. You're here to entertain me, which is so kind of, so London, so punk, you know. Well, I'm sorry, that doesn't work in the United States at all. You can get away with it in Britain, but it's it's absolutely not for export, that kind of thing. And and that was the classic sound of a guy who is aware that they're not making it and therefore is kind of just, is going to make the most of not making it. He's going to come back and say, well, I was too good for them. I was too strange for them. I was too edgy for them, which is what they tend to say if they don't make it. They always used to say, the records weren't in the shops. We got banned, all those kind of things. Yeah. Not true. They just didn't take. So when did this era of British preeminence come to an end, and why did it? Well, 
you know, you can still find examples nowadays if you go and look. I mean, there's people like Ed Sheeran and people like Adele are still very, hugely popular in the United States, but you you wouldn't describe them as phenomena uh, and you wouldn't say that the front of mind with their American fans is the fact that they're, that they're English or British or whatever, um, which they would have been in the 60s and the 70s. I think it it kind of comes to an end in the mid-80s because I think loads of things happened in the mid-80s. Video is by then absolutely huge. MTV is shaping shaping the tastes of the world. And you get the re-emergence of huge American acts, classic examples, Madonna and Bruce Springsteen, who are solo acts, and and they are American acts. And clearly what people like about them is they're American acts, you know, People are going along to Wembley Arena, you know, stadium, sorry, and wearing giant outsized cowboy hats and waving American flags and all. The, and nobody, that had never gone on in, in Britain before, you know. So the big American acts sold their Americanness to us, kind of like we sold our, our Englishness to them back in the, in, in the 60s. And then you get the arrival of, we are now in the, in the era of hip-hop. And hip hop is clearly an American invention, which <laughs> is a limit to how how it can be adapted by a British a British you know, musical culture. And the British musical culture loves it because the British mu- musical culture is immensely welcoming of things from all overseas, always has been. But uh, you know, so America tends to be dominated by American acts to this day. I mean, I've. If we fast forward to the 21st century, I mean, are the two nations' cultures distinct enough now for this to even matter? I mean, would would you even notice uh, if you're an American that a band was British? Yeah, I think it's a very interesting. I think that's a very good point. I think they probably wouldn't, you know, because we all live online, <laughs> you know. So, you know, kind of what we sound like doesn't matter, you know. Um, you know, the, 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 the kind of, I doubt, I doubt if Kim Kardashian draws any distinction between her followers in America or the UK or France or absolutely anywhere else at all. Yeah, the world is, well, well, the world pre-COVID, this is interesting because I finished this book pre-COVID, you know, you would have said by then it's a flattening world. You know, we all get around, everybody visits everywhere because don't forget back in the days of Bands going to America in the 60s were thinking, at least I get to go to America. That's unimaginable if I'm not in a pop group. Well, subsequently, everybody goes to America. You know, people go to Disney in Florida or whatever for, for Easter vacations. Yeah. Um, well, given what's happened in the last six months, they might not be doing that uh, so readily in the future. So that may mean that... There is a growth of distance and a consequent growth of enchantment. Let's hope so. David, thanks so much for that. I really enjoyed that. Thanks for your time. That's all right. That was David Hepworth. David's latest book, Overpaid, Oversexed and Over There, How a Few Skinny Brits with Bad Teeth Rocked America, is out now published by Bantam Press. If you enjoyed this podcast, then make sure that you tune in again on Sunday when Dominic Sandbrook will be speaking about Britain's swinging 60s. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear Priya Satya discuss her book, Time's Monster. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.